Welcome to Right Wing Dharma Squads, episode 26, continuing our series on reading Nagarjuna's Root Verses of the Middle Way. The, uh, there's a long Sanskrit title, the Mula Madhyamaka Karika, also known as the MMK. Uh, I am your host, Dharmakirti, joined, as always, by the squad. Hey, everyone. Hello. Hello. And, uh, yeah, so... It's good to be back. You guys did an awesome job last week. That was an excellent discussion of um, chapter seven and eight, and I thought we would just um, dive right into chapter nine. Um, which, uh, for those of you who are following along at home, reading the um, the uh, translation that we recommend that we're going along with in the in this series, which is the uh, Siddharths and Katsura translation. This is uh, included in their notes. But um, for those of you who maybe aren't doing that. It's probably worth mentioning that the, the, the overall frame for this chapter and, and also like the, one of the important kind of contextual pieces for the, for the next few chapters is a really centrally important – I'm actually – I think it's like to me kind of the, um, the central important issue for Buddhism in a lot of ways. And, and, and there's a really profound aspect to that that I'll get, in a sec, get to in a second. But the, the issue is the self, the existence of the self. Now, you know, th- there's, there's a whole lot that could be said about this. The, 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 the basic point is, um, unlike pretty much every other spiritual tradition, whether, you know, Asian or European or whatever, um, the Buddha, what really defines the Buddhist tradition is this teaching of what's called no self or anatman in Sanskrit or anatta in um, some in uh, Pali, and this teaching this uh, this 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 is the point that there is no self is um, to me I, it's always struck me as kind of ironic because it's it's sort of like if there's one thing that like defines the Buddhist tradition it's the philosophical position you could say or kind of really just recognition of the reality that there is no one thing that defines anything least of all you know ourselves um so you know in in a way you could sort of you know it's, it's almost like the line from um from fight club you know you are not your fucking khakis uh the 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 core buddhist insight here is that we are not our cognitions our perceptions our memories our bodies there is no thing or our khakis or our khakis exactly right or our possessions or anything else or our fucking khakis there is no there is no thing that that really ultimately makes us who we are that we can like point to and say this is the thing now where this gets a little bit complicated is at a kind of let's say um, ultimate level where you know this kind of analysis starts to go haywire. But but you know leaving that aside because that that's almost a, like you know the, then like language stops working and and it becomes just very difficult to to think or talk in any kind of rational way. You know from a kind of baseline human ordinary perspective, uh, it's true, you know, that this is a, like a kind of an important exercise. I think we've mentioned it before. We've definitely mentioned it before on this program, um, but it, it's it's really particularly important in the context of this chapter and, and really this work, the, the root verses of the middle way as a whole, was called the analysis of the chariot. 
which is the idea that, you know, when you try to break down a chariot, it, it could be anything, but this is, you know, the classically it's a chariot, you know, is the chariot in the wheels? Well, that's, you know, silly. Well, is the chariot in, you know, the axles? Well, no. Okay. Well, is it in the wheels plus the axles? Well, no, you know, well then if you, if it is, then if you take away one of the wheels, is there still a chariot? And, and, and you get your, you can get yourself turned up in, in these kind of, you know, um, very uh, elaborate philosophical knots uh, trying to explain, you know, well, where is the chariot and when is it the moment when you have all the other pieces except for like one wheel and then you put the last wheel on the chariot and then it's a chariot. It's like, okay, well then, you know, what, what, so much of the analysis to date in that we've been, you know, talking about in this text is basically variations on this kind of analysis of the chariot showing that, you know, actually when you really get right down to it, um, you, you know, you, you can sort of say, well, yeah, there's a chariot and, and conventionally you can use the word, you know, the kind of convention of the word chariot and you can certainly ride around in one and sort of, you know, ordinary language speak. But when you try to identify like, well, what is it really that makes a chariot or where is the chariot like really ultimately metaphysically? You know, whatever it is, whatever kind of story you come up with or whatever kind of logical reasoning you come up with to try to um, to to explain to your just to yourself or to someone else like, well, this is really where the chariot is. Um, you know, it doesn't actually work. It, there's always um, there's always some kind of logical contradiction hiding somewhere in your assumptions. And, and what Nagarjan is doing methodologically in this text what it really comes down to is he's he's showing where those fallacies are hiding uh, every single time that you try to postulate, you know, this is the, the way things really are and we can like really ironclad establish, you know, or prove like logically this is how stuff really, really is um, in terms of our ordinary experience. Like th there's always a million self-contradictory presuppositions um, s smuggled, you know, in your, in, in your, um, theories. And, and he's showing, he's like the, you know, whatever, like the Imperial agent, uh, you know, opening up the smuggling compartment showing, ah, I see where you're hiding all this stuff. Um, you're not going to get it past me. And, and yeah, so, um, we, uh, we, we have a, also a really great, uh, comment, um, on this note, maybe, which is a, is a great place to, to sort of kick off our discussion beyond what I've already said, which is, um, Finami says, I admit to not really understanding no self. I can't help but thinking that base consciousness is self. Now, the word base consciousness there is obviously doing a lot of work. Um, and it's not necessarily clear, you know, what is base consciousness and there's different people are going to have different accounts of this. I, I, I think it is necessary based on sort of what I said earlier in terms of like ultimate language that, you know, for example, there's a, um, a Tibetan Buddhist, um, very important figure named Dolpopa, who is the founder of the Jonang school, who is a great visionary, a great saint, a great scholar, very, very, very learned. And he taught, so, so Nagarjuna, this text is what's, it's been associated with what's called the, the middle way tradition, Madhyamaka, the word Madhyamaka essentially just means you can translate it typically as middle way. Dolpopa, taught what he called the great middle way, um, which was sort of um, a fusion. I mean, it was very, he was very much based on Nagarjuna, very much based on the Mula Madhyamaka Kataka in these texts. 
But um, he tried to integrate that, or I would say he did integrate that, with Yogacara, yoga, yoga practice tradition um, of Buddhist analysis, and also with Tantra. So from a Tantric perspective, from a kind of more, a, a perspective that's more kind of um, able and willing to talk discursively, that is conceptually, about things that are actually beyond thought and language, then, yeah, at a certain level, you can sort of, like he, like Dolpopa, the reason I bring him up is he, he said like flat out, you know, what, what he could call, what he called, what you could call base consciousness or what he would have agreed to call base consciousness. He called that self. He said that is a self. See, okay. Please, no, no. I mean, because there are a lot of things that it makes sense to call a self. Like that conventionally and just like in the living of your life, that makes sense to call a self. And I would I would also agree that the thing that it makes the most sense to call the self is that base consciousness because if you take that away, then there's nothing. You have a dead body. Um, right, exactly. But, but, but the that point, but, but the that doesn't is, mean yeah. go ahead. <laughs> what I was gonna say is okay, but that is purely from a kind of um Classical Indian Buddhist perspective, you can you can identify you can sort of talk about that or identify it or point at it, but there there's no like it's not an entity the way that like you you think of like a table or a chair or even yourself right. in an or it's not in that like it's not an entity in that sense. Well, yeah, the, it's not differentiated. Like it's not you know your maybe my base consciousness is in some sense different from your base consciousness, but whatever the dis whatever the, it is that the difference between you and me consists in, it's not our bodies, it's not our thoughts, it's not our memories. So what is it really that you're talking? Like what are you rescuing when you're trying to say like okay, well myself is my base consciousness. Maybe fine to some extent we can say that that's acceptable, but like, why are you saying that that's a, well, what is it that you think you're rescuing? What is it you think you're accomplishing by saying that like oh, I have this self that's actually this thing? Because normally, um, and I think this is true to some. I mean, you know, I, you know, uh, from for like for example, from a Christian perspective or, or general kind of perspectives, I think it's, it's more complicated in Christianity because there's a, there's a very similar distinction in Christianity between like ego and soul, right? Our souls are not our egos. Maybe that's a helpful way for people to think about it. But the point is, like, when, when Jesus says, you know, we're going to attain eternal life, well, that doesn't mean that you're necessarily going to, like, you know, it, it, it's a perfect ver version of you that, that's not connected in a, in a very, in an obvious way to, like, your kind of normal body and your normal mind well. that you have walking around. Well, it depends on who yeah, you ask. That's, okay. that's heretical it's, Christianity. I mean, resurrection maybe, I of the don't body. Know. Is, no, I mean, because I mean, I don't yeah, want to argue the, the modern uh, people like, don't. I don't think really believe in that. But any Orthodox Christian uh, teaches resurrection of the body. So. They teach no, no, no. They teach, but the body is different in resurrection. I don't again. I don't want to go into the minutiae of Christian theology. But the point is, sure. the, the resurrected body is different. Like it's not physical in the way that our normal bodies are physical in, well, in fact would, and that's the same it with would like, be physical but it's perfected physical so it's not subject to the fault that came to it yeah. via the fall it's it's a very different system and, and and buddhahood is embodied as well i mean that's the thing is like that's where, where the, the, this is one of the main currents that dolpopa is drawing on when he's talking about the self is he's saying you know there's the, there's this whole kind of field of buddhist analysis that's saying like well when you attain enlightenment when you attain buddhahood you manifest as embodied in a certain way like buddhas have bodies in fact they have depending on how you count two or three or four or five different kinds of bodies simultaneously um but but the point is that some of those 
bodies are like physically manifesting. Others are like, you know, that's sort of from the perspective of the defiled ordinary beings who, who see them. But, you know, the kind of true form of the body, I mean, there's the ultimate true form, which doesn't have any kind of physical characteristics. But then there's a kind of in-between form called the, the Sambhogakaya, um, or the, the, you know, communal enjoyment body, you could say, that... Hey! That does, yeah, right? Well, and again, this is the body that, that yes, you see these, like, you know, quasi, these, like, tantric, these, these images of tantric deities in, like, sexual union. That's the form that they're in is the symbogakaya form of communal enjoyment, including like a kind of sexual bliss. And and that is while not like physical in a kind of gross sense. And it's, I mean like, like particles and matter it it does. I mean, it has like, you know, colors and shapes and it appears in a certain way. And I mean, it's, it's not entirely. So that's how I think of, I mean, I think this is, again, we're kind of a little bit far afield, which is, can I jump in here? Please. Yeah. 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 Yeah, so something you said at the very beginning, and by the way, Finami, don't worry, you say I didn't mean to derail. It's not a derail because there there are no rails here. Um, so it's also the topic of this chapter. I mean, the chapter is all about. That's this exactly episode. right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, even before we, you know, you you added in your last little bit about Christianity uh, there, DK. Something that you said at the very top um, made me want to point out because because what you said um, very near the very beginning was that. Um, you know, there's conventional ways in which we can define the self or define a, ch- a chariot, and they, they work operationally in day-to-day life, and nobody's de- denying that in Buddhism. Um, and that when, you know, you start picking apart layers and stuff, it becomes very, very difficult to talk about. You're, you're, when you were explaining the concept of an Atman, uh, these are some of the words you use, paraphrasing. Um, and I was, I would just point out that it's, similar to uh, a concept in like um in a monotheistic religion the you know what are the characteristics of god well somebody like um aquinas could start trying to make you like um an argument about it and start using rather abstract words and stuff but if somebody says well what does god look like and say well he we're made in the image of God, so he kind of looks like us, but he's not just a person, or he looks like everything, he looks like the whole universe, or he maybe he's invisible, or he can look like anything he wants to look like. Okay, these are all interesting questions, and you know, maybe there's some, maybe there's some theological implications to the various answers, but the point being that answering a question like that does not need to get, try, you know, trying to find an answer to questions like that, and, and finding it frustrating or difficult or too arcane, does not mean that you can't you can't have an operational conceptualization of what god may be like or what he represents to you as a human being and then to live your life on a path towards seeking that right if you're a a believing monotheist similarly in the buddhist path although anatman becomes very difficult to exactly explain using words and even a genius who devoted his whole life to understanding these things like nagarjuna even he has to like kind of dance around and do this kind of Socratic dialogue method to get at what he's trying to point out. But that doesn't mean that there isn't like an operational path you can use to get there. So although, and I don't want to put words in, in anyone's mouth, but I, I I always, when I'm about to make these statements, I, I always wonder if the Zen people will be like, oh, come off it. Just, just come to awakening already. But uh, <laughs> I would say that, you know, you don't need to understand 
anatman holy. You don't need to, if there's this weird feeling you can't shake that your bare or base consciousness is, is underlying. Because by the way, I, I don't want to speak for Fanami here, but I, the tone of his question wasn't like asserting that base consciousness is it. It's just that when he's sitting and thinking about it, or maybe I'll stop saying Fanami myself, when you're sitting and thinking about it, you can't, very often you can't shake this feeling of like, yeah, but then there's bare awareness. And, and that must be me on some level. Well, it's level. important not to Even if it, I, yeah. Even if I know on an intellectual level and I've read and studied enough Buddhism that that's that actually not it, you, you can't shake that feeling because guess what? You're not, you haven't reached total awakening yet. So you still have this weird, that nagging feeling of, yeah, but I do really exist. Me, aura really exists, you know. But the point is, that's okay. Like that's the path. The path is to work along that path until you come to that awakening. And until you actually have come to that awakening, it's you're not going to see with total clarity because only a true Buddha seized with 100% clarity and and don't, you know, keep working on it, but don't worry about it, is what I would say. Well, um, one of the comments I had about that was just that, you know, the feeling as if you have something which could rightly be called a self isn't the same thing as being attached to a reification of the self as an inherently existent object with an essence, right? So yeah, there's there's the feeling of selfhood, which is totally understandable and a perfectly good conceptual um, convention, because uh, we all feel like that, and and that's just that's just how things seem. And it, it does, it's, you know, using that convention isn't the same thing as reifying uh, the self that way. That's all I was going to say. What I, what I would say yeah, is, and uh, oh, sorry, I know we on. should get into the I know we should get into the text here, but I, I'll just add something on top of that um, storm. And I was just listening to a Dharma talk this morning, and the teacher was pointing out, um, you know, we can we can say that, um, you know, if you have a concept of, of forests or mountains, and then to look past your concepts and see that they just are there, and, and that and that your concept of them doesn't define them or whatever. He was talking about that sort of bare awareness thing, He's saying when you're dealing with your own suffering with your own hang-ups your own mental loops that you stuck on the things that are causing you dukkha right that's those are the thing your own attachments those are the things that you need to see as bare and and stark as you can see the mountains or the forest or whatever like it's nice to see the forest uh just as this beautiful thing that just exists without needing any concepts on top of it but if if you can't see your own attachments that way like, you know, your, your hangups about your parents or your own fears or your own lustful desires or whatever, then the forest stuff, that's only good for writing poetry. You're not going to reason enlightenment <laughs> that way. You need to see your own hangups. Well, you're the hangups and the attachments, those are forests in their own way, but yeah. So, so I had, I had, uh, maybe two, two quick things and then we can go right back into the text. The, the first is that, um, the, uh, the thing about the the bare awareness is pe people often get in, get caught in this loop of thinking that it's like that's no self means nihilism like I do not exist and and this often in my experience goes kind of hand in hand with with the um, kind of scientific atheist types who have some to some extent colonized Buddhism um, we had a suggestion for a separate conversation which I think we should have I don't want to go down this rabbit hole right now but we should probably do this maybe next time or, or shortly on um, like Stephen Batchelor and the whole Buddhism without beliefs kind of thing, um, which uh, is a is a slight. It's different. It's related. It's similarly problematic uh, in some ways worse, in my opinion, than the California Dharma thing. But the point is that 
no self does not mean nihilism. It does not mean like I am not aware. It does not mean your cognition, your experience, your awareness is reducible to like neurons firing in your brain or whatever. I mean, that's like a nonsense philosophical idea, but that's a different issue also. I'm simply saying like, like it's important to keep in mind like when we, when Buddhist, when Buddhism says no self, it means there's nothing to grasp on in terms of your experience. It means that feeling like you're the center point of your own experience is, is a kind of distortion. It's, it's like something that's going wrong in your mind, but it couldn't, there, there's nothing that it would mean for it to be wrong for you to be having experience like in general period at all. Number See, the, all oh, these yeah, problems please. arise because it's not no self. It's not that there's <laughs> no self. There's no self-essence, okay? Yes. You can yeah. have a self yeah. that's empty of self-essence, and you don't get any of this confusion, right? So I just don't, as long as you're not doing the all this reification stuff, on, you're on okay. That point, on that point, there's a there's an important distinction that the Western tradition makes um, that it isn't really put this way in the Buddhist tradition, but it, it, it's definitely kind of like operating in the background. Um, and we, we sort of alluded to it before, but I want to make it explicit because I was thinking about it in connection with this text. Between what's what's called apophatic and cataphatic language, um, or philosophy, or, or theology, and and the distinction is basically like this: there's this idea. Um, it actually comes from the kind of you could say esoteric tr- Christian tradition, where like God in that tradition is understood to be just completely beyond you know thought and language and anything like that. So. While it is possible to use what's called cataphatic language, which is, you could say, positive language, to say, well, you know, what can we say positively about God? Well, we can say that, you know, he's good. We can say that he's powerful. We can say, you know, qual- we can sort of attribute various descriptors or qualities. Um, from a, from an, what's called the apophatic, or you could say negative um, tradition, the, the, the negative in the sense that, like, really kind of from an ultimate perspective or at least a more um re, you know refined kind of a perspective like while you you can sort of say that like it's not really actually accomplishing much to say that and it's much more accurate to say well you know we what do we know we we, we can talk about what god or whatever dharmakaya buddhahood etc we can say we, it's easier to sort of talk about what it's not it's easier to refute we can say like, well you you know there's all these kind of wrong ideas floating around and rather than trying to like say the right thing, which the, all of this stuff is completely beyond our ability to rationally comprehend anyway, so rather than trying to do the impossible, um, what we're going to do instead is sort of point out negatively, point out like a like a like a like a photographic negative, like a mirror image, saying like, well, this doesn't, you know, here's what here's what something that's wrong. We're going to break it down. We're going to expose the problems, and, and in doing that, we're going to engender this kind of moment of realization, and that is what's going on in this text. That is what, what's going on here is Nagarjan is sort of systematically going through like, well, what are all the various ideas that we're sort of, you know, have in our minds about how things might actually work, how, how enlightenment really is or whatever, and, and showing how all our ordinary thoughts and conceptions um, just don't ever measure up. And there's a very famous verse that we'll get to, you know, later, where he basically says, and then when, when the when when the proliferation of thoughts has, has ceased, there is peace, and that peace, that is the moment. But anyway, sorry, I, I didn't want to, you know, this is, this is a great discussion. And I think a great, it's a great setup for um, for this chapter. All right, so chapter nine is kind of a discussion about what happens um, when you try and reify the base consciousness or reify the self. What kind of things happen? What kind of stuff can be said to be coherent? What What's not coherent anymore? And really this whole project, like, this whole work is going to be useless to you 
unless you're concerned with putting together a logically coherent explanation of reality. If you're not concerned that it's logically coherent, then then there's no there's no bearing here, right? Um, so one of the first things is is the opponent, the imagined opponent here, is going to sort of argue that um, agent and he's going to admit agent and action they're empty, but he's going to try to maintain that consciousness is actually not empty because the emptiness of phenomenon requires that there be phenomenon and so in order for us to perceive it there has to be something there and that's kind of where we start out um you know so the things that come to my mind about this is that already we're begging the question because already the opponent by essentially implying that in order for us to perceive something there has to be something quote unquote there for us to perceive you're already assuming a self-essence in the object and if you say it's not in the object well then they will put it in the person which is what's happened in this chapter um but if we're seeking out to prove that there's a self-essence then we shouldn't start by claiming there's a self-essence which is the issues in kind of being critiqued in verse one and two and um you know he says uh see the opponent implies without a subject of experience there can be no experience and no experience objects this argument is familiar because uh, it kind of reminds me of Immanuel Kant, but I would I would be careful about comparing Kant and Nagarjuna because Kant is a substantialist and Nagarjuna is not. You fellas got comments on that? What do you think? Or do you have thoughts? Uh, no, no thought. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no thought, no thinker. Um, no, you know, I actually, <clears throat> despite all the times I've said how complex this uh, is and everything, to be honest, this chapter is actually one of the more straightforward to me, um, which is a, a slight irony because to me, it's these are more, um, these are sort of where the rubber's really starting to hit the road with this text. Um, a lot of the stuff about like the goer and going and, and uh, those kinds of things, uh, e even, yeah, uh, th those ones are, are, almost like he's laying the groundwork um, for these kinds of arguments. Um, yet those ones are actually kind of harder for me to get into. Maybe it's just because I've thought about these things a lot in, in studying Buddhism, but... Um, That's interesting. I, I found the uh, um, the earlier ones to be to be much easier, and these the later ones that we've been in to be a lot more difficult. Well, I think, I think Ora, you're, you're exactly right when you say that, that he's sort of... Those early, especially the first and second chapters, are really just... They're, they're laying out his methodology and showing, you know, how how the general critique is going to work. And they're kind of very, the, the most, I think that that's the sort of the highest level of abstraction. Then he proceeds in essentially what amounts to a number of case studies in, in the analysis. And and so this, it, but, but, but I, probably because, you know, you do have... Um, a, you know, quite a bit of experience with meditation, and, and you're you're quite familiar with the idea of, um, there no, you know, the idea that the, your your aggregates, the your body and your thoughts and so on, are are not the same. There, there's no self there. That that this makes a kind of intuitive sense to you, and that that's not that's not at all surprising to me that, that you would find this analysis um, intuitive in that way. Uh, as far as the actual content, I think I think it's it's worth you know drilling down just just a bit. Um, sorry about that. Uh, when he says, you know, some opponents say vision, hearing, and the rest of the sense faculties, as well as feeling and the rest of the mental constituents, that to which they belong exists 
before them. Um, that's what the opponents claim. And so they ask, you know, and so the Nagarjuna rather asks, how indeed will vision and so on come to belong to a non-existent entity? Hence, before they occur, there exists an established entity. Uh, sorry, actually, no, that's both the opponent. But the point, the point here is uh, the, the idea is when, when you want, we have this idea, right? I mean, this is sort of base level, like if you were to just pull a person off the street and ask them, you know, do you see stuff, right? Um, you'd be like, of course. And so then, you know, if, if you're just, a, you know, accosting him for unknown purposes at this kind of moment and this sort of philosophical analysis, you'd say, well, what does it mean? What does it mean for you to, to see stuff? Is that, you know, would you say that there's like a you and that sees and there's like a seeing that like that is yours? Right. And, and so in the essence of the kind of response is yes. Like that's kind of how we normally think about these things is. There is a me, there is an I, I am the subject, I am the one who sees, and there is this seeing, this visual cognition or whatever, vision, that, that I have. Um, the question is, you know, the, the problem is, essentially, is there, does this, uh, does this vision exist prior, does this seeing exist prior to me, you know, me having it or not, right? And, and the, the essence of like the analysis here, in other words, is if you could have a vision without there being one who is seeing it, then, then you just obviously that just doesn't even make sense. But if there's but if the if there if they have to be dependent on each other at the same time, then what what would that mean in any case? Because the in order for there to say in order for, to say that you have like a me that is seeing these things exist would have to exist in a relationship. And uh, th there's no such relationship that's possible within the span of just an instantaneous moment. I'm not sure how much sense. It, go on. I'm curious what you have to say. Well, the the opponent wants to argue that the self is is logically independent of all of its different perceptions and and the content thereof. Um, but if they do this, then you know if we if we do agree to this, then we create the possibility of there being a subject that is non-perceiving. That is a perceiver that does not perceive. And then we also create the possibility for unperceived perceptions. Neither one of those things make any sense. Now, and that's only, um, that's only if we say the self is logically independent of its percep perceptions and their content. So in verse five, Nagarjuna, he emphasizes that it only makes sense to talk about a perception as a perception if it's perceived. And it only makes sense to talk about a perceiver that is perceiving. So already, almost in the, even in the definitions of these words, we're losing our essences because these two things are, are both involved in the act of creating and maintaining each other. Um, so verse 5 is emphasizing the interdependence of the subject and the object. They're literally defini definitionally dependent on each other. Um, and he also is worth mentioning that some people will posit like a pure subjectivity as the ground of reality. That's kind of, to me, on its face, ridiculous. Um, and, and it's kind of very similar, again, to Kant and Schopenhauer. I mean, the whole point... But it's honest, at least. I, I like it. I mean, I, I agree it's yeah. ridiculous, but it, it's at least in an honest attempt to try to solve this, this dilemma. What quality would a pure subjectivity have if it's not perceiving, right? And if it's pure, as in pure subjectivity, meaning like inherently subjective... It just, I don't, it, you, you end up with these non sequiturs, like a non-perceived perception and a perceiver that doesn't perceive. 
And you can solve this problem if you just don't reify these things and you have them relate to each other in a relationship of mutual dependence where there is no essence, right? That way you can have everything inform everything else. Uh, let's yeah, see. this is getting this is getting away from the text a little bit to, to bring up this analogy. But, um, you know, like DK, you're saying somebody comes up to you on the street and says, do you see stuff? First of all, I want someone to do that to me. I was like, what do you the see stuff? Like... <laughs> and I'll be like, yeah, man. <laughs> and then I'll be like, but do you really see it? And I'll be like, no, man. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, you'd be like that, but that's the point is uh, most people. What do you mean rad. by what do you mean by you? Yeah, exactly. You stuff. Right? Um, but, uh, Just think you know, the there's, the, there's a, the little classic drawing. This is such an easy example, but yeah, it works for me. Um, you know, there's that the little drawing of you've seen of the little homunculus inside of a person's brain, a little man in there who's like driving the skull, you know, and he's got levers for moving the arms and legs. And when stuff, when stuff but comes aura, in through the, what? Who's in his skull? Well, that's where I'm going with it, man. And, you know, I, I don't even mean that in like a stoner way, but like, you know, like it, that's the thing. Like if what 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 texts like this, what this chapter specifically is sort of pointing out again, I don't actually think this is the, it's not the arguments he's making, but it puts into my mind this idea that, you know, like so there's a little man inside of you who's doing all this perceiving. But then seriously, no joke. Who's in who? who's inside that guy's little head right and and then that little guy's got to have a little guy inside of his head and you know on ad infinitum um that is actually kind of the argument that he's made. I mean, not i mean cause... specifically here it's about appropriation and like appropriated like this relationship of you know the, the idea that like i as a self or as a person i am the one who like has the th qualities that i want to attribute to myself including you know various forms of Sensory cognition and and whatever, but but that's definitely I don't think it's um, it's definitely implicit is what I would say, is like yeah. the kind of the analysis that you were just pointing towards. Yeah, Kagu. Yeah, because I was under I was under the impression that he wrote this chapter in response to some I guess they were the Pudgalavado means personalists who think that there's some kind of person that is somehow. Uh, substantial it's substantive but not but it's dependently originated and I guess they're saying it's like the skandhas are appropriating the senses somehow it's 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 a very well, the idea is that like they said there's no self but there's a person I mean this is a sort of there's a lot of like we don't really know who these Pudgalavadans were or like how important like it, it's kind of is one of these interesting very nerdy questions of like just who are these people and and how much did they even really exist you know there's maybe they it seems very contradictory to the buddhist tradition and it, it it's the kind of thing that like but it doesn't matter because it's in, you one could sort of easily imagine a situation where you know it it's it kind of an in-between what we were talking about before in terms of you know it's not quite as sophisticated as someone saying like well, you know, there's there is this thing that is, you know, the kind of the nature of our awareness that isn't isn't bound to anything and isn't differentiated and you know is really beyond thought and language. But um, you know, we can call it a self in a certain sense, and that's okay because you know it's 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 there. It's not like that it totally doesn't exist, and we are aware, and our you know you and I are different streams of being, and so there's something that makes us different, and that's what it is. Okay. But that's not what these people are really saying. Um, th this is sort of saying much less sophisticated than that. What, what they're saying is that there's like, okay, well, there's no self in this kind of like ultimate, like, you know, 
sense of like there's like a just a pure me-ness but there is like what oh, I, I the question is what, what what different like what what it, would the difference even really be because yeah there's, there's not one i mean there's they're, not they're, one they're, they're, right yeah no. like as soon as you start saying like well there is this thing that like has <laughs> the cognition and that has you know like the vision and that like you, that's that would be a self there's no other thing than than that that it would be yeah, I mean, and, and apparently Nagarjuna goes straight into using the Sanskrit term uh, Atman to describe what they're yeah. talking about because that's, that's right. essentially what it's it what is. That's what it is, yeah. This reminds me of the objections people have to the Galugpa thing where they're like, uh, yeah, they like want to reify emptiness and also um, say that it's purely conventional at the same time. Kind of, that's like what these people are trying to do. They're like, there's a self, man, but like not really, but there is. But there is. But not though. really. Yeah, but not really. Yeah, exactly. But there is, though. Yeah, that's that's kind of <laughs> yeah. what they're doing. Um, so the next move the opponent makes to me is totally silly, and I don't know why you would do this, but he, he posits um, like instead that cognition is actually momentary, and there's always a prior entity, and instead of this continuous self across uh, all these different perceptions where the perce- perception's changing, it's just like, a bunch of frames of cognition moment to moment, right? So to me, that's kind of ridiculous on its face because there's no point in positing that entity that's momentary because if it's not here at one point and then it comes into being at another point, already it can't have an essence. It's produced. It needs certain cause and effect. (laughs) This is great. No, that's a great explanation. And I think this is like the midwits dilemma. I mean, that's again, it's sort of like this, this is the danger of sort of someone having a little bit of knowledge. Um, who maybe shouldn't have because they they they, they kind of get that they shouldn't talk about a self. They get that the, you know all the problems with saying like you know well are is is your self is is yourself like in your eyeball? Well, I mean like what kind of a question is that? Well, is yourself like when you see stuff? Is it in that? And it's like well no. Okay, well is yourself and and so they they kind of understand there's a little there's a small level of understanding of um you know this kind of analysis of the chariot style thing where it's like well you you know whatever it is that you try to point to concretely um it's not going to work and yet they're still really attached to this idea that um that you know I, they're they're real they want to be real in a way um they want this analysis to like not work in some kind of a way um so they say well okay well myself you know it's not uh it's not that myself is like you know metaphysically present in this or that but it's like when all of the different stuff in my mind and body like come together at every moment, because every moment, you know, there's like different kinds of sensory stuff happening. There's different kinds of like material stuff happening, right? Like nobody's denying that there's this kind of stream of cause and effect of, of mental and physical processes. Um, so they say, okay, well, all of that stuff taken together at every moment, like that's the self. Like, and, and, and then it's like, okay, but again, what, what are you even what are you even really talking about? Nagarjuna responds, you know, if the person doesn't exist prior to all of that stuff taken together, how does the person exist prior to each of them individually? So like, if, if you're trying to say that it's, it's, it's taken them all together all at the same time, then is it not the case that it would have to be prior to each, you know, prior to like each individual atom of your bodies? Like, cause each individual atom in a sense, each individual fundamental particle, not like, Adam, but we've talked about this a little before, but, but, you know, indivisible fundamental particle, right. Has its own kind of like causal history, its own kind of causal stream. So is, does like, is there a you that's the you for each single one of those, like taken individually separate 
from or together with the, the all of them taken together. I mean, you you see, I think people are starting to get a sense maybe of like the just these insane logical knots that you start twisting yourself into. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, if we're going to talk about self-existences and causation, almost every time, you know, like if there's something that's inherently a perceiver, then it would perceive everything all the time with no exception because it can't get any information from other things in the world in order to determine whether or not it is perceiving because that would be a dependence. So anyway, um, so I just so, wanted, so, just on this note, I think there's a, there's a, there's a nice note here. I have it pulled up on the video, but for those um, who are just listening, um, as Chandrakirti says, if there is no forest prior to the trees, then likewise, it doesn't exist prior to each of the trees individually. And so Sidorus and Katsura sort of add, suppose we plant a tree in a forest. We might then say that the tree is now one part of the forest, although the forest existed before that tree. Chandrakirti is saying this cannot ultimately, Nagarjan is really saying that this cannot be true. If it were true, then we would have to say that the same forest existed before another one of its trees was planted and so on. In the next two verses, Nagarjuna will pose the question whether it is the same forest that exists before and after we add a new tree. So this is like a chariot, you know. Is it the same chariot if you add a spoiler, a car, right? Is the car, I mean, cars are like modern chariots, so to speak. If you add a spoiler or like a rim to a car, is it the same car? If you like take off a rim or a spoiler, is it the same car? I mean, the, you know, you can say, well, some parts are more important than others. But the point is... Like whatever it is that you're trying to say, you know that that really is the the car that has all the car parts that the car parts belong to the car. It doesn't make any sense to say that there is a car that pre-exists all of those individual parts, and it doesn't make any sense to say that there is a car that's like the support for all of them all together all at once. If that makes sense. That's beautiful. That's perfect. Uh, and who was that? Who was that quote from? The, which quote? The that's uh, so that's from. Okay, so there's there's the whole other thing that I don't want to go down to. There's a, there's a a his, like there's this commentator on Nagarjuna named Chandrakirti who's very important for the Gelug school of tradition of Tibetan Buddhism and like has been a focus of a lot of um, Western study. I personally don't think his analysis is ne- is typical like. Chandrakirti gets a lot of really important stuff very, very wrong. That's not something that's very popular in certain circles for me to say that, but it's true. But um, yeah, I, I feel you. But but <laughs> uh, but in any case, it he he is a sort of like it's this interesting kind of issue because Chandrakirti, like for four hundred years after um, he first wrote his um, commentary on this text. Uh, he was basically just ignored and and there was a lot like the historically the much more important source of um, analysis for this for the middle way philosophy was um, Shantarakshita and and various other kind of um, people in the Indian Buddhist world Uh, but then starting around actually connected to I sort of already mentioned Tantra here um, Tantra became more and more and more important in Indian Buddhism as it you know approached the the end when the Muslims came and killed everyone and uh, there was a very, very important tantric commentary written by a an author who called himself Chandrakirti, and and that text um, it was was just again really important. It was on the Guya Samaja Tantra, and on the basis essentially of the reputation primarily of that Chandrakirti who wrote that tantric commentary like 400 years later after 
the commentary on this text, um, people started like going back to that text. And then there was like a bunch of stuff that happened in Tibet and for kind of just really complicated reasons that, that I don't want to get into, um, in Tibet under the Geluk school, the interpretation of Chandrakirti, which is which is what they call in Tibet, sometimes you'll hear the word prasangika, like that's what that means. Is sort yeah, of I've read about that. Yeah, it's what like Geluks who like Chandrakirti like call their version of Madhyamaka prasangika, and they think it's the best. Um, this is like a huge. This is like the really the central or one of the central arguments in Tibetan Buddhism is over is over like how seriously how you know important do we take this prasangika kind of chandrakirti thing um and the the split is basically between the geluks and everyone else um now for me again like not you know i i i have a lot of respect for the geluk tradition it's you know very serious scholars that do very high quality work but um they get some important stuff i think um particularly with regard to the indian tradition not really right and and this is you know their inter- their interpretation of this text is really at the heart of that. That said, like well, the, the the essence of the problem, and this bears on this issue, is is that Chandrakirti is, um, I think, too extreme. Um, sort of famously for Chandrakirti, he he goes so far as like when we were talking before about baseline level awareness and how you know we were I was I was very careful to point out that like you know yes it is important to not be a nihilist about the fact that we are aware and we do have minds and that you know buddhas also have minds it's just their buddha's mind is totally perfected and and flawless and knows everything etc um Trenjikirti kind of infamously uh claimed that buddhas don't have minds anymore that 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 getting in getting rid of all their imperfections they actually also get rid of their minds and their mind like stream is brought to a complete halt it's just you know ceases entirely no longer exists that is not acceptable that is just wrong in fact um and and but the reason that he does that is because he has a very kind of extreme take on nagarjuna a very extreme take on what emptiness is and and what emptiness means and um so so i you know it's kind of like a running theme again i don't want to get into these weeds because this is really kind of you know this is not intended as that level of um um study we're trying to just get at the main points here but um, it is true that Chandrakirti wrote one of the, you know, one of the few kind of full, you know, point by point commentaries on this text. And many leaving aside this kind of question about like what ultimately happens in Buddhahood and some of the, you know, these tonal issues about sort of you could say how extreme he is. Um, I do think it's important to, to, to recognize that, he you know, he's a very bright guy and he makes a, num- a number of good points. And his point in this verse is good. He, he's, he's exactly right when he's talking about, you know, this issue of like. Is the is there is there a forest prior to all the trees? Is there a forest prior to like one tree? Is the forest the same, you know, before and after you you plant one individual tree, and so on? Um, this is a very good example. This is a very good analysis. This is a very good way of thinking about it, and it should be recognized as such. Okay, sorry, awesome. I, that was a long excursion. <laughs> I didn't mean to like go down. Yeah. I, I I mentioned because I just it was I would I didn't want to say the name Chandrakirti in this series just because I didn't want to go down this rabbit hole, but it's, be- you know, I-, I said it because it's in the text that we're reading. And- well, we're doing it yeah, now. It's been done. The Siddharths, <laughs> the Siddharths references Chantakirti in almost All the time. every single chapter. All the time, so. that's right. It's Speaking of, of chapters, shall we yeah. move on to the yes, next Yes, please, one? of course, yes. Okay. You, you want to move to the next chapter? I'd like to, I want to set this one up, Storm. Uh, I'm yeah, gonna go ahead. Up, and then you can hit it. Yeah. Uh, just from time to time, I think it's nice to actually just read the verses uh, for people to listen to. 
Uh, so with your, in, if you will indulge me, I'm going Please. to read just the first nine verses from this, um, uh, from this chapter, which is chapter 10, an analysis, analysis of, of fire, fire, of and, fire fuel. and fuel. Yes. <clears throat> so, uh, and, uh, as the, the astute listener will have noted, um, some verses are in the voice of Nagarjuna and some are in his imagined, um, or embodied, uh, interlocutor or arguer he's starting in his own he's starting with his own arguments in this in this chapter he says if the fuel <clears throat> excuse me if the fuel were identical with the fire then agent and object would be one if fire were distinct from fuel then there would be fire without fuel fire would always alight it would be a case be it would be without a cause of lighting a second beginning is pointless and if it were so it would be devoid of object because it is not dependent on another, it is without a cause of lighting. It being permanently alight, it would follow that restarting is pointless. If you were then to say, fuel is that which is being burned, then by what distinct entity is that fuel to be burned when it is fuel only as long as it is being burned? If fire is other than fuel, it will not touch fuel. Not having touched, it will not burn it up. And if it does not burn it up, it will not go out. If it will not go out, then it will endure precisely as something with its own mark. Then comes the objection from the interlocutor. Fire could touch fuel, even though distinct from fuel, just as a woman touches a man and a man touches a woman. Reply, fire being distinct from fuel would surely be able to touch fuel if fire and fuel were mutually independent. If fire depends on fuel and fuel depends on fire, which of the two is arisen first, fuel or the fire that is dependent on that? If fire is dependent on fuel, then there is the establishing of an already established fire. If so, then also fuel would come to be without relation to fire. And it continues on, but that gives people a little flavor of, of the discussion of the, uh, yeah. the poetry. I appreciate that. We, we should be doing more of that. I really enjoyed that. You got a good voice for that, too. Thank you. Um, so so this chapter, um, it's about a counterexample. So Nagarjuna has shown us time and time again that things are empty of self-essence and they are uh, dependent on everything else to be what they are in this network of mutually interdependent everything. And that this understanding, and in fact, any understanding we have is going to end up being conventional. So that's Nagarjuna's argument. The opponent is using this example of the fire and fuel to try and say, wait, no, there's a special case here. Um, and that would be that sometimes we can have a inherently existing cause that has an empty effect. And so it won't depend at all. Uh, the cause won't depend at all on the effect or vice versa. Um, and, they'll, and they're going to say that this asymmetrical dependence <clears throat> is the reason they can reify something or other. And so then what happens is Nagarjuna has a bunch of uh, uh, objections to when they try and say this. You know, you heard a bunch of them. So if if fire isn't dependent on fuel, then you're going to have fires where things aren't burning, which makes absolutely no sense. The other thing, which is a little bit less intuitive, is that if you have fuel that doesn't depend on fire, what makes it fuel? I mean, there's nothing apart from its potential to combust that makes it fuel. Well, it's and like does it count were, as fuel if it's not currently burning? If you recall the discussion of causality in, in chapter one, right? And it's basically, it's structurally the same argument. 
What makes a cause a cause is its putative relationship with an effect. The problem is before the effect has arisen, like it doesn't. Then, then there's it, what? How could it be a cause? Because the effect doesn't done anything yet. If it was inherently a cause, it would be causing at all times. All the time, right? And if and after the effect has arisen, then what does it need a cause for? Like, what are you even talking about, bro? So, like, and similarly, that's the point here is when you say, like, okay, if there's something that really is inherently fuel, fuel in the sense of, I mean, you could say, like, you know, specifically, like, the wood or whatever that you're burning to make a fire, but but really, like, I mean, the, the kind of underlying metaphor here is is that... It, it, it's connected to the previous discussion in terms of, you know, the idea of the these so-called Pudgalavadans is that, you know, the, the fire is like the, the, the experiences that we're having and the fuel is like the self, right, or whatever, the person. And so there's this relationship of mutual dependence that's being posited. And Nagarjuna is just saying, like, okay, it's, but... It's, please. It's asymmetrical dependence because one is getting reified and the other one isn't. Yeah, exactly. Well, but I mean, the problem is no matter whichever you try to reify or, you know, whatever, it just it doesn't it doesn't actually work. Because if something really had the nature of being fuel in this sense, if it really had the intrinsic inherent nature of being fuel, then whether or not it was actually serving as fuel for a fire um, ever, it would necessarily be... uh, it would it would necessarily be the fuel like in other words you could have fuel that was fuel without there without ever actually combusting or, or or you know fueling a fire and similarly if you had fire this like effect this, this this whatever you want however you want to think of it um you know you could have fire essentially that didn't burn right because it wouldn't be burning anything it would be re- it was if it had really inherently the nature of fire then it could burn you know if it was independent if it had an independent nature of fire that was independent of the fuel then it could burn without, as he's, you know, this is kind of very humorous example, um, you know, touching the fire. And then the opponent says, well, like a man and a woman touch. It's like, yeah, but, but what do you, again, what are you even really talking about? Or I feel like you have something to say. Um, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, do you I? would get, <laughs> <laughs> you would get, oh, did you say aura? I'm sorry. I did say aura, but I, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, but I, I will say, I will say, uh, I will skip ahead and read one single verse, uh, which is, I ended it at nine and, uh, he explained some more. And then 14 is summing it up again. Fire is not fuel. Fire is not elsewhere than where fuel is. Fire does not possess fuel. Fuel is not in fire and fire is not in fuel. Yeah. And these, these ones are actually on, I mean, if you stop and think about each one, these those ones aren't even difficult to get. Like, right. what what he has to do is the work of catching you making these assumptions. But when he states them so bluntly like that, well, like, yeah, of course, all of that's true. So then, as Storm was saying, then you have to stop and go back and be like, aha! But weren't the assumptions that you started with sort of depending on the on one or more of these these obviously false assumptions that fire is not the same thing as fuel, for example. And it turns out, as we find again and again, that fire and fuel are mutually dependent for their existence on each other. Yeah, even, like you could sort of say in reality they are and conceptually they are. And a lot of what happens in the MMK is uh, things that are like inherently relational, like the goer and the going and the thus gone or whatever, or cause and effect, these things that are inherently relational i mean even in the definitions of what they are even in the conventional understanding of what they are they are relational so when you break them apart and give them both an essence and say they can never depend on each other then you get a bunch of silly shit that doesn't make any sense 
Because if you want to be logically coherent and uh, save, save things like motion, like time passing, like there being perceptions, like the world having order, uh, like there being a cause and effect that we can estimate, if you want to save any of the biggest conventional understandings about our world and how it works, really the only way you can do so and be logically coherent is if you think about things in terms of being empty of self-essence. And on, and on that note, the, the key point, because you mentioned exactly this point that th these things are mutually dependent, but, but for Nagarjuna, one of the main points that he's getting at, and I sort of sketched this out earlier, but, but I want to make it more explicit. When, it, in a certain sense, it's fine to talk about fire and fuel being mutually interdependent in a given moment. Like what, what kind of what he's getting at, if you want to sort of cash it out in conceptual terms is, uh, okay, so let's say we have a burning fire, right? Well, you're designating like certain plasma particles or whatever, like fire on the basis of the fact that they're in, existing in the present moment in a certain kind of a causal relationship with like, let's say wood particles for, you know, to speak in generalities. Um, that are serving as like the basis for the oxidation reaction, blah blah blah. Okay, fine. That that there's no there's no problem with that. The problem is with the idea that like there's one thing over here, like ontologically, metaphysically, that's the fire, and there's like another thing over here, over there, that's that's the fuel. And even if you were to try to say from a kind of more sophisticated perspective, like okay, well, it's not that it's like there's there's one thing over here. And there's like another thing over there. Like clearly, they're existing in this kind of relationship of mutual dependence. You can to talk about one is by definition to talk about the other. Like the, the you know you, you you they're existing in a certain kind of a, a causal complex that you can't actually you know disentangle each other from. Okay, fine. But when you say that, what you're what you what you're, you you can no longer then say that like they they. they to say that these things have this kind of relationship of mutual dependence is precisely to say that neither of them is ultimately ontologically established as metaphysically real in and of itself. These things are, are completely incompatible logically. To say that, you know, the, when, as soon as you say that X and Y exists in a relationship of mutual dependence, what you've said is that X is empty of X and Y is empty of Y because they are only, they only make sense as you know, logically in terms of that relation between each other. And that's what emptiness means. It doesn't mean like X doesn't exist. And some, what, what is even like, what is non-existence? It's a, it's a concept. It doesn't make it, you're not actually talking about anything. You're not saying that X doesn't exist. You're saying like X doesn't have like this kind of ultimate true nature of being X independent of anything else, in particular, independent of Y and vice versa. Is, is this making sense? No, that's, yes. that makes perfect sense. At the risk of, um, of gumming things up, gumming up what is a very uh, clear and sort of austere text um, with some sloppy modern um, analogies. I would just like to take that same that same um, verse fourteen that I read about you know fuel is not in the fire, it's not elsewhere than where the fire is, etc., and um, and try to make an analogy to because to me the first thing I think of, and I I think Nagarjuna is probably not unaware that some people who study Buddhism might be thinking along the same lines is is the analogy of the uh, which i alluded to in our last episode which is uh the fire uh clinging to the body uh, being uh, related to the concept of being uh yeah stuck on the ego boy i'm, I'm already losing my way um in in buddhism uh specifically because nirvana is 
um, related to the fire um, being released, right? So um, if we could think of the fuel and the fire in sort of modern terms of like the experience and the self, or even for like uh, Reddit tier atheists, like qualia and the brain, I think most people know what the what qualia are, but if people no, I don't, don't think that, I think um, you need to explain. I mean, I know what they are, but I, don't, I think we need for our audience. Yeah. Um, well, now since I don't use this term a lot, I'm probably going to give a, a a sloppy definition. But essentially, qualia is a term that's that's used by people who study, um, yeah, ex- consciousness and how it relates to like neurons firing and stuff. And it, it's a word that's trying to uh reify frankly <laughs> to put it in these terms uh individual like sense experiences or or events in the brain that are experienced as conscious experiences so do you think that's a good enough explanation uh, well the, DK? the classical yeah i think that's good the only thing i would add is um the classical example here is like what is the, the explanation is what is it like to be something like so like there's yeah. this famous essay i think what is it like to be a bat by i believe yes. thomas nagel we're basically right. arguing for Qualia and this idea of like, you know, I can explain to you various facts about bats, but unless you're a bat, like there's an aspect of the experience of the bat that you're never going to get because you're not a bat, essentially. Right. And those things are consist of actual something called Qualia, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and from the uh, word, like, I think quality, that, I forget how it's derived, but yeah. Anyway, sorry, go on. Yeah. And I think sophisticated thinkers are at least, at least I should hope that some of these sophisticated thinkers who use this term are aware that it's sort of uh uh just a convention that they're using but i think a lot of them start to reify it and i think that the average person who want, who doesn't want <laughs> to believe in consciousness who doesn't want to believe in non-materiality uh really sinks onto the one it thinks but anyway so but i just want to now i'm going to rephrase um uh nagarjuna's fire and fuel using qualia in the brain so he would say qualia are not the brain right qualia are not elsewhere than where the brain is Qualia do not possess the brain. The brain is not in qualia, and qualia are not in the brain. So then where are you? Like, if there's this magical relationship between the brain and qualia, then what the hell is it? Like, you've, you've just said nothing. You've just waved your hands around a lot by you, by reifying either or the brain I, I or qualia. I think qualias. that's one of the more profound things I've ever heard, and I would like you, if you wouldn't mind, please, to, to say that one more time. Wow, okay. Yeah, so... If, if, you know, people who believe in, in, in neuroscience is the end-all be-all of description of like what's going on with consciousness or the self or whatever, they, they think that it's in the physical brain somehow, right? And to explain the fact that they don't, you know, that, that our lived experience seems to be something other than just like brain meat, right? We actually experience, you know, smells and tastes and emotions and all these things. Those things are qualia. Those are like the inside of of what's does the inside experience of what's happening when your neurons are firing right and already smart people can hear like well wait what are you actually saying but they really do reify it this way and say well that that's just what it is and so using the uh, the the same kind of argumentation that nagarjuna uses we can see that this brain and the qualia are supposed to have some sort of relationship but then when we look at the relationship piece by piece like nagarjuna would the qualia aren't in the brain, and yet they're not elsewhere than the, where the brain is, et cetera, et cetera. You find that you, you've said nothing. You no, said absolutely say, nothing. Say, say it again. Say the whole formulation again in, in those The terms. formula is qualia are not the brain. Qualia are not elsewhere than where the brain is. Qualia do not possess the brain. The brain is not in qualia, and qualia are not in the brain. Beautiful. 
I kind of want to continue, but I also kind of really want to leave it there if, if there are no <laughs> objections. Do we want to continue? I just, I'm just like stunned. That's so, and, and I think that needs that, that formulation or that you just did that. And, and, and I mean, your explanation was, was brilliant as well, but that like needs to be nailed to the wall of the office of every single philosopher in the university system and cognitive scientist, et cetera, like, and, and, and the tattooed on their fucking foreheads. Uh, just as far send as them copy, copies of the MMK. Yeah, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. Do you, do you guys want to go on? or, or um, uh, We can leave it there. We, we, we can just save the other chapters for later. Yeah. That's a good we'll save spot. The other, I'm sorry. I know we're kind of, like, going a little bit slowly, but this text does um, deserve... I think you know there's a level of attention, and we'll we'll, we'll mix it up with um, other topics and stuff. And we were discussing that uh, off air, but um, there is one comment I did want please, to make. Yes, um, with I guess it's more in, in reference to chapter uh, to verse thirteen with the satkarya uh, what is it the satkaryavada view of uh, causality, where the um, it seems I mean I don't consider myself to be an expert on Aristotle by any any means but it's almost like they're arguing for the view that like the wood carries in it the potentiality of the fire mm -hmm. and that the uh, if that like whatever is the efficient cause is then what creates the fire is then the then that's the cause of the fire I, I've 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 kind of been looking trying to consider what the objection to that kind of um, view of causality would be from uh, Nagarjuna's point of view. And I guess what he's referencing back to is that argument about um, the, the traversed, the, that which has been traversed in the past versus traversed in the future and already being traversed. Um, it's, I'm, so I'm not tr really getting his point of what he's actually saying there though, what his actual objection is to that. So you mentioned the um, Satkaryavada. That mm -hmm. is a uh, uh, it's a common there's like there's there's different views in India about like causality um, one of the m more common ones in particular with the Sankhya school um, that's connected especially with the yoga tradition um, like like you know that's bastardized like everyone knows you know like <laughs> various forms of you like that that yoga um, uh, is the idea that things the effect is essentially already present um just unmanifest in the yes. cause so like the cause the cause and the effect are essentially the same thing it's just like mm -hmm. the effect is the manifest effect and the cause is the unmanifest effect sort of um so the the response that what Nagarjun is getting at is is what he's saying what the opponent is saying um and I'm, i'll read here from from Sideritz and katsura he says the opponent claims that there is fire already in the fuel but in unmanifest form but under the right circumstances such as rubbing two pieces of fuel together this fire can be made manifest as chandrakirti represents it the argument against this hypothesis is simple manifestation is said to be an effect of the rubbing but as an effect does it exist in its cause or not if not, then you've actually abandoned the, the Satkaryavada hypothesis. This means that the opponent now owes us an explanation of why the rubbing produces manifestation and not some other effect. If it does exist in its cause, then it too must be in unmanifest form. What then makes this manifestation become manifest? This is the start of an infinite regress. Um, so the That's point is that, like, you know, again, if you're, if you're trying to say that 
like what the, the point here is what is the moment when you're saying that like the fu- the fire exists unmanifest in the fuel already mm-hmm. okay well then it becomes manifest but like what what is the relationship between the manifestation and the fuel i mean we've already you know in terms of like the going and the goer and all this kind of analysis for people who have you maybe missed it in chapter discussion of chapter two um you know there would have to be one manifestation that's what makes the manifestation of the fire in the fuel the, the the actual manifestation and then another manifestation that is the quality of the fuel that's like before manifestation i mean you you start having to posit all of these that's an infinite regress yeah right there right and and all of these that's the another way of thinking about this infinite regress so there's no like the point is like you start having to hypothesize all of these you know kind of invisible inactive entities and and get yourself into these regresses as soon as you um never ending homunculi Sorry. Yeah, exactly. Never like, ending it, homunculi. It, that's a great, it's a great question. I mean, that, that's what I'm saying. Like, it, it's definitely part of what's going on in this argument is like, you know, who's inside, like, who's the homunculus inside the homunculus, right? And what make, why, why do you, when you say that there's a homunculus, as soon as you make that kind of a claim or you say like, well, there's, you know, there's this thing inside this other thing that makes it what it is. Okay. But what's inside that other thing that makes it what it is. And, and more importantly, kind of at like a meta level, why is your claim that okay because at some point you can you can always say like well no there isn't an infinite regress because there's like a a stop to the process like one thing that's actually the thing but in order to like say that it has to be some kind of a reason there has to be some kind of you know you you can there are like maybe valid potentially valid sort of things that you can appeal to but the point Nagarjuna's point here is like whatever it is that you're appealing to in this case on those grounds is going to be special pleading because all you're saying is like well there is this kind of cut off to the inner infinite regress like just you know because i say so or something it's kind of an interesting question as to where you would even put that point because it's i mean seven layers bad. down yeah it's ah <laughs> <laughs> uh. I mean, the only alternative you have to that is to is to assume it when you set out in the first place. So just begging the question, right? It's always like infinite regress, begging the question, or special pleading. Because there's really, I mean, it's set up intentionally by Nagarjuna this way over and over and over again so that that's what happens, right? This is the only way to save it. Okay. Was there anything else? Um, Kagi, was that satisfactory? Do you still have that is uh, Yes, that is, uh, that's absolutely perfect. Cool. Can I uh, read something? Please. All right. This is um, from the Blue Cliff record. <clears throat> Elder Ting asked Lin Chi, what is the great meaning of the Buddhist teaching? Lin Chi came down off his meditation seat, grabbed and held onto him, gave him a slap, and then pushed him away. Ting stood there motionless. An elder monk standing nearby said, Elder Ting, why do you not bow? Just as Ting bowed, he was suddenly greatly enlightened. The ten directions cut off, a thousand eyes abruptly open. When one phrase cuts off all streams, myriad impulses cease. And that's it. When Say that last sentence again. <clears throat> Let's see. Uh, ten thousand directions cut off, a thousand eyes abruptly open. When one phrase cuts off all streams, the myriad impulses cease. When one phrase cuts off all streams, the myriad impulses cease. And with that... I would like to thank everyone in I would like to thank all of you guys of course and, and everyone who's listening and um, as always again, hit us with any questions we had a couple of unaddressed questions in the chat we'll do our best next time thank you again and uh, we will see you next time <laughs>